ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. Our awesome guest today is the awesome Yael Ben-David, and we're going to talk about the business of UX writing today. This show is brought to you by Userlist, an email automation platform for SaaS companies. It matches the complexity of your customer data, including many-to-many relationships between users and companies. Book your demo call today at userless.com. Hi, Yael. Hi, Jane. Uh, we are so excited to have you here again, and uh, we have a f- wonderful reason for that. You have a new book coming out. Well, yes. by the time it's released, it's already out, probably. Tell us more. Sure. Uh, yeah. So the business of UX writing launched with a book apart on December 6th, 2020, not that long ago. And it's just super exciting. It's my first book. And I was able to publish with a book apart who's published with, you know, a lot of my content heroes. So that was, that was a real honor. So it's your second time here in the show. And we talked about microcopy the first time, was it 19, 2019, I think three years ago, give us a primer for those who don't know you, what kind of work you do and yeah, what's your business? Sure. So back then I was almost exclusively writing microcopy. So I was pretty early in my UX writing career. I had sort of shifted from content writing, like long form and copywriting, like totally to be exclusively in product. And since then, I've really been able to expand that practice to include more strategic projects, more leadership opportunities, and more content operations, and really using content design and UX writing skills to go above and beyond and increase our impact, which is, I guess we'll get into the book, but really the book is about how we can have a much bigger impact than we have had until today. So let's start by ruining the expectations of our listeners who thought that the the, the business of UX writing is like how to make money as a UX writer. It's not that, is it? (laughs) As a UX writer, no, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) So what is the goal? What made you pick this title? And I know it was a journey to get it published, and I'm so happy you landed at the book apart. What made you think that you need to write this specific book? Like, what was the urge? Sure. I'll tell you that a few years ago, when I first started looking into the ROI, I come from a science background. I was in a neurobiology lab for 10 years, uh, finished my doctorate, and then did not want to continue in that field, but did have this sort of data-driven mindset. And I was also hearing in my new field of UX writing, a lot of talk in the global community about getting a seat at the table. And so to me, it was like a very obvious connection, like who wouldn't want us at the table when we have data making our case for us. And I was also very fortunate to be working at a company where I had the autonomy to propose and initiate projects like that, where I would be able to get some data for my work. And I started to read about it and write it about it on my blog and uh, speak at it at conferences for smaller meetups and then bigger conferences. Uh, a 20-minute talk became a 40-minute talk, became a two-hour masterclass on the O'Reilly Learning Platform. And eventually I said, you know what, I have enough to say about this to fill a book and not many other people are talking a lot about it. I think there's a void in the field. 
And if that's something that I can help fill, obviously, ever since I started that journey of, you know, others have joined me here in this rabbit hole and many more people are talking about it now, which I think is fantastic. And I'm really glad to see that, for example, again, I think a year or two after I spoke about it at Button Conference, somebody else spoke about it at Button Conference. So it's getting more and more top of mind. But I did feel it was a void that I might be in a unique position to help fill. And that's, I guess, where the where the book came from. Before we dive into the topic, um, give us some context. As a practitioner, um, do you find yourself working on a limited time projects or more like an in-house writer and what kind of projects you work on? Is it microcopy or emails or all of that together? It's definitely all of the above. Personally, I don't work as a freelancer at all. Uh, I prefer to be embedded in a team. I find that the sort of relationship building and the strategic impact that I'm able to have in-house is very meaningful for me and very rewarding. So I like to stick with that. I write all the microcopy in the product, in the actual interface for the last couple of products I've written for. In addition, I've been able to do some more overarching strategic projects, like creating a new content design system for transactional emails. So yes, I'm also writing the emails. I'm writing the SMS messages, really any product flow communications, even if they're outside the screen or the app itself. Uh, yeah. And then I've, you know, in the last year or two expanded into strategic projects, creating a content guild, creating a content style guide. Uh, I think it's really important for anyone else out there working on a content style guide or a voice and tone guide to not forget the part about distribution and education. Like who cares if you have a beautiful document, if nobody's using it there, I've been looking into tooling, like the writer tool to help automate and scale some of our standards. So yeah, all of that, all of that. <laughs> Do you find that there is a state when this is ready or, and you're like, all right, this is ready. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to move on to another company or is it, has it been more, mostly like one, one or two companies that you've stuck at? I stuck at a few companies. The last one I stuck at for as long as I did because of my fantastic team. And uh, really I worked with, uh, I was on the UX team. It's one of the things two jobs ago, I said, I never, I'm going to work at another company. I mean, never say never, but where the UX writer sits with the marketing writers uh, mm -hmm. at my last company, I was able to create an awesome content guild. We had all different forums and rituals and t-shirts to connect and make the collaboration as fruitful as possible. I respect very much what marketing writers do. I don't think it's the most effective org structure for UX writers to sit with them though. So I sat with the designers and next to the product department and it was just really fantastic. So I stayed there a long time, but also for the opportunities that I was able and my boss and mentor was able to help me create to, to branch out into these strategic projects. You know, as long as I got the microcopy done, I was able to find my next challenge without moving company. So it was really an amazing experience. When it comes to the business of UX writing, what are the top challenges that have been successful and neglected over the years that you are addressing here? So I sure. heard is that writers were supposed to be serving users, but at the same time, they're the same time their interests of the company that they should pursue. So it's all about balancing those, isn't it? Of course. Yeah. So really the, the thesis of the book and the historical context that I opened the book with 
goes through how as UXers, we are advocates for the user and we've been loud advocates and loyal advocates and creative advocates. And that is all very important. However, I believe that as a discipline, we have sort of matured past that. We're done arguing for a seat at the table and throwing those, uh, you, you really can see the stages. So, you know, 20 years ago, even it was, we were babies. We barely even had a name after that. We were kind of toddlers throwing tantrums to be included. Uh, and now we're sort of in this adolescent stage where I think we have an opportunity to do some retrospect, like some retrospective thinking and, and how do we want to strategically move the field forward. And I think uh, there's almost a paradigm shift that we're going to have to take on right now, which is not going to be easy, but it's that we're not, that we've left out another user advocate and that's the business itself. I think a lot of times there's a tension within companies where the UXers and the business stakeholders see their interests at odds and that whoever's priorities get moved forward, it's going to inevitably take resources away from the other. And I think as we think about what we want to do next and how we want to increase our impact going forward as UX writers, it's going to require more of a collaborative approach, more of a meeting of the minds, more of a recognition that the business matters to the user. If the business is not successful and growing, that's features the users aren't getting. That's an improved experience the users aren't getting. And that at the end of the day, the users are there to complete a job, that the business is also there to have them complete. And it takes a few minutes to wrap your minds around, and it almost seems obvious and but it still needs to be said. And so the book is really about how we can use UX writing, use our skill set, use our talent and our specialization to do even more by stopping to waste the energy and the resources arguing with the business and instead pull in the business as a really critical stakeholder that at the end of the day, even if they don't realize it right now, are big advocates for the user. If we zoom out and let's say apply the jobs to be done framework, it's all about zooming out into the big picture, about helping the customer achieve their bigger life slash business goal, not do something, a little job that you're trying to facilitate inside the tool, isn't it? Totally. I mean, an example that I like to give is sometimes UX writers will want to personalize communications. So a welcome back screen or an email will start with their name, right? Like, hi, Jane, and not just hi or hi there. And that is definitely better UX writing. It's almost all the time a better experience. But if you now bring in the business stakeholder and you think, how much is that going to cost the company to implement? And would the user rather me spend those tens of thousands of dollars creating a new feature they've been asking for? So, and then that feature, which makes the user interact more, actually ends up turning a better profit for the business. And so if you bring in both needs, you see how well they generally do align. And that we shouldn't be arguing for what we think is a better experience because actually, if we open up our minds and work together, we could find an even better experience. That makes sense. In your projects that you've worked on, um, has there been place for those unnecessary delighters? Because we've had a couple of conversations here recently that all the fun stuff, all the delightful stuff is by definition, unnecessary. So I'm curious how that plays into the balancing act of what's necessary. I don't agree at all. I mean, it's all about what are your goals, right? So and are those delighters helping achieve your goal? 
goals. Now, I do agree that some of those delighters are going to be harder to measure. It's not as you know clear cut what the metric should be, what's the correct proxy. If you find a proxy and you measure it, how you interpret the data, like it definitely, they might be harder to prove the impact of them, but there's an impact. I mean, even if it's something as small as people are now talking about that Easter egg on social media and now your products become more discoverable, you're not going to be able to attribute any, you know, kind of spike. It might not even be a clear spike in registrations or whatever to that Easter egg feature. That's true. But I definitely think that there's there's value. There there can definitely be value. And deciding whether it's worth investing in is really going to be about zooming out and what are your overarching goals. Now, we are speaking about prioritization, and that's one of the uh, pillars of your five-letter <laughs> framework that we're going to decipher now, if you can tell us more about that. Yeah, sure. So... One of the things that was important to me in writing this book was to make it a playbook. My my favorite books, and a lot of them from a book apart, are ones that I really see as reference material. I didn't read them once and walk away. So one of the things I have here is a framework, basically like an ROI of UX writing framework called Kapow. So that's an acronym. Uh, Know your goals, articulate solutions, prioritize options own your metrics and at the very end, actually write, and we can dive into any of those that you want to, but yeah. So, I mean, for example, we were just talking about measuring success and that falls under own your metrics. So this is really kind of a playbook, kind of a a framework or a process. I feel like we can apply to our everyday work to, to increase the impact, the business impact, uh, and also the benefit at the end of the day to the user, if we use it in our UX writing. I'm glad you're paying special attention to the fact that merely writing is just the tip of the iceberg. In the same way, for example, we work in the email industry and like composing that campaign and writing email, it is just the tip of the iceberg. Before that comes business goals, customer data, segmentation, all the other unsexy things that never get attention, you know, and you just can't do a good campaign without that. So... Writing in the same way is the tip of your iceberg in UX writing industry. Absolutely. I mean, if you ask me to, you know, write a screen, I could write 20 versions in in 10 minutes, but who cares? Like, that's really not what the work is about. Especially if I did do that, you can go back to the P in, in Kapow, prioritize solutions. Like, okay, so in 10 minutes, I provided 20 versions. How am I supposed to know which is worth developing and implementing? So you have to go back to the K, which is no your goals. So there, yeah, it's like the tip of the iceberg. I feel like everything going on under the water is, is what makes the tip that you see impactful and work and, and do the job. Let's walk through those aspects and let's start with the, with the goals, the K, know your goals. So what, what does it mean? What goals can a UX writing project have? Sure. So the main goals, so what I really, I really want UX writers to zoom out and really take a high level view, not just of UX writing goals, but the company goals. Like what is the entire business trying to achieve? Knowing your goals should always be top of mind. And also, you know, hopefully you have, we're working at a place where they have broken down their own goals. So you can look at the two-year plan, you can look at the one-year plan, you can look at the quarterly plan. Uh, and if you don't have access to that kind of information, speak to your local friendly product manager and make sure you're getting looped in. But 
know your goals starts with knowing all of the goals. What's the big vision? And then after that, I would say you kind of filter and create a short list of the goals where UX writing can have an impact. So if one of the goals that has to do with revenue is about fee rates, okay, that's not for us. You should be aware of it because we should to be you know respected and have an optimal contributions. We should be able to hold our own in any business conversation, but that's not where our impact is going to be. Okay. So let's put that goal aside. Let's say there's another goal that has to do with retention or something. Okay. There, maybe we can have an impact. So there is going to be like a funnel. There is going to be a filtering process, but I believe it's important to know all the goals. And then you can then narrow it down to the goals where UX writing is particularly relevant. And then after that, I like to, I've sort of adapted the rice paradigm, which I took from the world of product management, where you start to decide, okay, now I have of the 10 business goals, there are three where UX writing can have a huge impact. Of those three, which should I focus on next? And then you look at rice, which is talking about like the reach, how many users, the impact. Okay, maybe this is going to reach a lot of users and this is only going to reach a few users but which users? Maybe those few users are the power users, which have the biggest potential for high lifetime value. And you go through and you go through. And then at the end, you narrow, let's say those three goals down to one or two. uh, And then you've sort of finished with the K, know your goals. You have to have a North Star. There's no point in writing anything if you don't have sort of a baseline of where you're starting and where you're heading. Speaking of solutions, what is a solution for UX copywriting? Is it the ultimate set of words? Is it certain concept that you're trying to pick from like one or two, three options there? Like, what is it? Solutions can take a lot of forms. I think the most obvious is when you're simply writing a string, right? Like a piece of microcopy for a button or a title, a subtitle, anything like that. Helper text, form fields. Yes, you can propose multiple solutions, but I've found in my work that it's much more gratifying and also uh, impactful and challenging and meaningful when we really leverage the content design part of our job. And I've been in situations, for example, where there was one solution where we had an extra piece of information that we wanted to present the user with based on feedback from users and frontline teams like the support reps. And we knew that progressive disclosure was the way to go because some users were going to need this information and some weren't. And so the idea was what solution will get us out of the way, get out of the way and reduce the friction of users who don't want to read this and yet have it available to those who do. And it was in my you know purview to come as the UX writer slash content designer and say, well, why don't we try two different versions? It's not just how we word the extra information. It's what it's how we we structure the content consumption. So do we put it behind a tooltip where it's behind a click? Increasing the friction for those who need it, but decreasing the friction for those who don't? Or do we put it as helper text so it's not behind a click, but it does require some more reading? And this is obviously a decision you're going to make very close collaboration with the UX designer who has also a lot of expertise when deciding these kinds of questions, when looking at these kinds of questions. So yeah, that's the, the, there's many different forms that solutions can take, but as long as you've done know your goals well, and you know what the problem is that you're trying to solve. So yeah, the next is to, step is to articulate different possible solutions and then prioritize which to, which to apply first. There is a certain temptation if you are like working in-house and it's like a small problem, there's a temptation to just present one solution 
And it's almost never a good idea because <laughs> even to yourself, it's better to come up with the next one and, and try and compare and then present those to the product team. Do you find that the same sentiment applies to your practice? Absolutely. It's it's funny that, you know, it's quality over quantity, right? I'd rather have some single version of the text that has a huge impact than multiple different flows or versions. But I do think that an important first step in getting quality is starting with quantity. Like we did the same thing with the book title, actually. We kind of thought the working title was the UX, the business of UX writing, but we couldn't just go with our first solution, right? So we did this kind of brain dump, the publishers and I, and filled the doc with dozens of alternatives. And at the end of the day, went with the business of UX writing. So the first <laughs> one's the one we went with, but it gave us so much more confidence at this point that it was the right thing because we had played with other options. When it comes to the actual work, uh, working at a company and doing UX writing for a product, you're not going to be, you might not even be able to A-B test even two of your solutions, but coming up with many allows you to then have that same confidence when you pick the one to apply. The next step in your framework is prioritize. And what does it mean? So you have two, three solutions to your problem. What do you mean prioritize them? So you have to decide which to implement, because like I said, you know, there's almost a zero chance that a 0% chance you're going to be able to really try them all in like a ABCD test or whatever for, for all kinds of reasons. You know, it's not only because of uh, dev bandwidth and then not being able to code or willing to code all of those, but also if you don't have enough users in your product to get meaningful statistics in a reasonable time frame in each test group, it's not going to happen. So once you have all your solutions you've articulated, you need to prioritize which ones to try. And that's going to require understanding the cost of each one, the potential impact of each one. And there again, it's going to be a, now that you've really collaborated in the articulation of solutions with your UX designers, you're going to now go to anyone who can give you insight into sort of the cost benefit analysis of trying these solutions. And at this point, you might also speak to users and get some almost anecdotal evidence from interviews and get some sort of a feel from that, putting, for example, on user testing or any kind of platform like that, you put in front of them your different solutions you've articulated and try to get a feel for which is worth prioritizing to implement first. The biggest pain in my books is the metrics aspect because, well, having worked in a SaaS business, in our own SaaS business, and having worked with other SaaS businesses who are trying to implement their email automation, which is based on customer data, which is in turn based on engineering work, engineering resources is always a problem. So imagine a wonderful UX writer comes in and so like, let's, let's do some more metrics, like let's measure the impact. Does it always work like that in your life experience? And if not, what are the sh like workarounds you can take to fix that? Yeah, sure. So of course we don't live in this, you know, utopia where we can measure whatever we want, whenever we want. But in the framework, it's the, in Kapow, O is for own metrics. So it's not M for measure them. It's not I for implement. I, I expect the UX writer, you don't need to be a mathematician. I expect us to be, to take ownership to liaise between the data scientists and the product manager and whomever else needs to be involved and apply some critical thinking. So for example, you asked about workarounds. One of the workarounds, if you aren't able to implement 
whatever measurement you're trying to collect. You can look at what already exists. You know, every company is already measuring something. And you need to be the one to come in and say, we can leverage this existing metric, but that one won't be an accurate proxy. If we lean into this metric, for example, if you're measuring open rates, but you're trying to know if the content inside the email converts, it's not an accurate proxy. You won't answer your question. Open rates will only tell you about how successful the subject line was, not the content of the email. And if you don't come and apply that critical thinking and raise that point and own that feedback, then no one else will. So a a very common workaround is to leverage what you have, if possible. Uh, Another one is to supplement whatever's being measured with uh, qualitative data that you can get on your own. So UX writers, even if you're privileged enough to work with a dedicated UX researcher, still have room to speak themselves to customers, to put screens in front of them, to do interviews, even surveys, to collect all kinds of other data that they can look at together with whatever's being measured. Because at the end of the day, whatever you're measuring, whether it's your ideal measurement or whether what happens to come for free, you know, out of the box, as they say, that's only going to tell you the what. It's not going to tell you the why. So uh, no matter what you're measuring, if it's your dream metric or not, you need to be combining different methodologies to get a robust understanding of what's going on. So there's that. And and then there's also, you know, if your dev team is not able to uh, build a new measurement that you're trying to get, the question is why not? And their answer is because they're building something else. So this is the point at which I would say, have a conversation about the real value, long-term, short-term you know, look at the goals that we've collected in the beginning of the process. Is it true that what they were planning to build instead of what you're asking them to build is really better for the business and the users? Sometimes the answer might be surprising. My favorite paradigm is from project management. And let's say you have three projects to run. You can run them simultaneously or you can rep one and then start another. And there's great benefit to doing it consecutively because then you have a chance to learn from the first and learn from the second much earlier. So I think that kind of applies to measuring UX writing ROI as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the user is experiencing a number of your experiments all at the same time. So it's also (laughs) important to see if you've implemented a metric for one project, if you can leverage it for another. And they're also going to be confounding factors that you have to take. So I totally agree. The more things you can learn from and then apply to your next project, definitely lean into that. When it comes to the writing part, what is your philosophy? Like, uh, give us an insight into your insider, like professional experience. What do you do? What tools you use? How, what, what's, what are the tools of the craft and the, the methods? Sure. I think the first most important Thing before you put pen to paper is to set ego aside and not to treat your words as precious. To remember that in the field of UX writing, it's it's different than you know in poetry or prose where beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Here, success is pretty defined. And again, it connects back to those goals and the user's goals and the business goals. So a lot of times the first iteration you might fall in love with and you need to not, you need to really be open to feedback. So I would say my first principle is don't get attached to the words for the word's sake, get attached to the goal. And so that might mean you're going to write a lot until you get to the final version. 
And then the second is to really leverage others' expertise. So we're coming in as the experts in writing, but we're not the experts in pretty much anything else. So I, for example, have worked in med tech and fintech. I even worked on a crypto product for a bit and thinking about next going into legal tech. I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor and I'm not any of those things, but I don't need to be because if I have a healthy collaboration, I can learn from those experts and we can work together so I can apply my writing skills and they can apply their uh, vertical specific skills. So my process is really about asking a million questions, really like just keep asking questions until you understand. It's very clear when a writer writes about something they don't understand themselves. It's terrible. So just, you know, to be humble, ask a million questions, lean into others' expertise, and just be willing to go through a million, a million iterations and just keep on writing and keep on writing, which is the fun part, the most fun part for most of us. So it's not, it's not a hard rule of thumb to abide by. I'd like to add that even if you know about everything. So in, in Uselist, I'm doing the UX writing part. And when I ship like a bit of the interface uh, shared with the team, Oftentimes I do feel like, well, that is definitely like the epitome of knowledge and like uh, exemplary UX. And then it's amazing how better it gets after people provide their feedback and we all work on it together. So coming in humble is definitely, definitely helpful. Absolutely. I had the same thing with my book where I really enjoyed writing the first draft because that was just like writing whatever I wanted. And then every editing phase after that was not fun (laughs) because that really felt like hard work. (laughs) But the thing that kept me going was that I saw how much better it got with each iteration and each it, each editor, because they bring in a few different editors who came in and, and tore apart bits of what I'd done, actually made it much, much better. So, so yeah, you, you got to stick with it because the goal is not to prove to everyone what a beautiful writer you are. It's to achieve goals that you came in to achieve. Just we do it with our words. So you've been practicing UX writing for ages and what has changed in your writing process since the beginning? Like how can you compare the young Yale to the Yale today who's right? I definitely think I've grown in the sense that I've been able to zoom out. Um, I'm less stuck in the weeds in a good way. So it used to be when I first got started that I didn't know any of the very basic best practices. Kinar Yefraf's book, which kind of the ultimate guide to microcopy, which kind of put them all in one place, wasn't even out yet. So I didn't really have anywhere to look for the basics, like even clear, concise, and helpful. Like I was very focused on writing well for an interface and what are the conventions I can lean into. And since then, I've really kind of gotten that down pat, kind of know that stuff by rote. I'm actually teaching that stuff in a couple of courses. And So the Yale of today is much more strategy-oriented and leadership-oriented and content operations-oriented and really looking for ways, and and the last chapter in the book talks about this, about beyond writing, even if we follow the Kapow framework so that our writing has a really big impact, there's so much more we can do. And, And that more, that strategic stuff is going to be harder to measure. That's true but it is going to be worthwhile. Like it's just think about instead of putting a bandaid on the situation, you cure the disease, right? So if we can set up systems that will solve us having to put out fires all the time, that's going to be good for the business, good for everyone. And, and I find it really fulfilling work too. 
Let's imagine some of our listeners who run like small to medium-sized SaaS companies who can't afford an in-house UX writer, but would like to establish some of those systems and processes. What could be that like MVP DIY version for content best practices? Sure. So I actually think that that those people are one of the target audiences for this book because these are businesses that need to make the most with what they've got. And so if take away all the strategic stuff, let's say they only have the bandwidth to think about microcopy. Microcopy is generally very cheap. Like the return on investment is easy to make high because the investment is so low. So if you compare, for example, redesigning a whole screen visually versus changing the copy on a button, like dev wise and QA wise and everything else, that's just, it's very cheap and inexpensive. So if you make the most of that, it's what I would call low hanging fruit. So, you know, there's books like Kineritz, which talk about best practices. There's books like Tori Pomajerski's. There's this book where I think that exactly the people you're describing can, you know, read three books and already get their more bang for their buck in the sense that they're anyway writing something. So just understand how to write it more impactfully. And you don't have a dedicated, you don't need a dedicated writer to use that. Somebody's writing. Even if you don't have a dedicated writer, somebody's writing. So that person can apply some of these principles to be more successful without investing any more time or resources. Just do it. You mentioned uh, three books. Give us more details so that we can put them in show notes. Sure. So Kinera Yefrach's The Ultimate Guide to Microcopy is the one I usually recommend as a place to get started with tactical best practices. And then I always say that part two should be the strategic angle, which is Tori Podmajerski's Strategic Writing for UX. And she actually was both the inspiration for me to write my book and then in the end wrote the foreword for my book. So especially those who are business oriented and looking to increase the impact in a, in a real hard, cold monetary way, uh, I would also uh, humbly add mine to their reading list as well. All right. All right. That sounds great. Speaking of which, as we're wrapping up today's episode, where can they find your book? Uh, so a book apart.com is the place that, that you can buy it. And and my website is yaelbendavid.me. But if you're really looking for the book, it's a book apart. Do you have a blog? Any other interesting things? Anything on social media? Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm in all the places. I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is yaelbendavid. I have a blog on Medium. And I've put a lot there since the very beginning of my career. So generally when, you know, sort of juniors reach out to me on LinkedIn, I'm also published on LinkedIn, uh, reach out to me and ask for advice. Almost every question I get, I can start by sending them a blog post. I've really written about, you know, everything from a day in the life to, you know, everything's there. So you can find that on Medium. Also, Yael Ben David. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today. It's a great insight into the world of uh, UX writing. And we're wishing you all the best with the book and uh, with your professional career. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Have a wonderful rest of your week. You too.